in the Torah and in the olden times, all our um, enemies, right, um, Haman, Paro, they all knew um, uh, in the astrology or in the black magic, um, uh, how to, like, uh, what, what to pinpoint uh, in the Jews during that time, uh, how, how to bring them down. Um, for instance, like they say, Haman, um, he knew uh, the, 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 the meaning behind Machasita Shekel, and he was trying to, um, uh, like, reverse our merit from it. That was one of the things that he was trying to do. Like, or you know, there's just certain things that they all knew. Yeah. You, uh, are the enemies in, in our times now, are they um, that smart? Where they where they know like because cause these guys they saw things they saw they saw things that and they knew things more than other people so do do our enemies now our in our days uh, do they have that vision so to speak um it's a good question I I don't believe that they are were as knowledgeable about the Jews today as the olden people you have to remember one thing. The Jews, as uh, what, as few as they were, were a much greater percentage of the populations, you know, of the uh, a lot of the nations that they were in. You know, even in Rome, for instance, the Jews were, many people say, they could have been as much as 10% of the population of Rome. Certainly in Egypt, you had millions of Jews. So therefore, probably because of that, because they were, they were a much greater percentage, therefore, probably as a result of that, the Goyim studied the Jews much more. But today, the Jews really, in many ways, are much less a percentage of the nations of the world, you see. And besides, there's much less emphasis there on religion now as there was in those days. So therefore, people are not concerned. Look, everybody knows, when you think about it, that the Jews are the people of the Torah, the Bible. They all know that. And everybody knows, most people have had some type of a exposure to the Torah, the Chumash. They all know that God made an agreement with Abraham. He took the Jews out of Egypt and he said that the Jews are his people forever. They all know that. And then you have Nach. You know, you have Yeshayo, Isaiah, Jimmy, uh, you know, Yirmiyohu, and so on. They all know that also. You see? But they don't really care. You know, because religion does not occupy the same, uh, the same status that it occupied in the olden days. In the olden days, even though people were worship idols... They were over Abu Zarah, right? But uh, but even if you worship an idol, you believe in God. So they were much more conscious of religion then that they are now, because even Abu Zarah is religion. It you know they believe in a God. Today you know most most religious people today in many ways, it's lip service. You know, I mean, you take a look at Europe. Europe, who goes to church anymore? 90% of the people don't even go to church. You see? So religion does not occupy the same importance that it did in those days. 
So as a result of that, I, I, my feeling is that they're not really concerned about Jews. So therefore, they think they can get away with it. You see? Look, you take a guy like Hitler, you know, he was familiar with Christianity and what Christianity says, you know, about the Jews and so on. But what, what did he care? You know, he openly defied God. You know, even though God says, you are my people. You know, did the Catholic Church do anything to oppose Hitler? Of course not. You know, Pope, 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 Pope Pius XII or whatever, what did he do? Nothing. Even though he's the, he was the Pope, you see. So I, I believe that religion does not occupy the same place of importance that it did thousands of years ago. So therefore, they don't know this. You know, they don't study about Judaism and so on, you know. Today, most of what is today is not because there's avodazarat, because nobody cares about God. God has become, in many ways, irrelevant to most of mankind. And even those people who profess to observe the religion, what do they really observe? You know, they're not really involved in religion, you know, and so on, you know. So I don't believe that's it need to be the case. You know what I'm saying? Thank you. Okay. Okay, are we ready for a share? Yes. Okay, I want to talk about a very... I want to talk about a very important topic. And I would probably say that, you know, most people I don't think really have a handle on this. Now, this Shabbat is Parshat Zachor, Parshat Zachor. And obviously, it concerns itself with Amalek, you know. Um, you know, Amalek. And Amalek occupies a very important position in Judaism, you see. Uh, so I want to talk about that, see. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. <clears throat> If the Torah, if the Torah did not say that Amalek attacked the Jews after they got out of Egypt and before Matan Torah, it would be very hard to believe that this ever happened. Of course, the Torah says it did happen, fine. But when you think about it, really it's illogical that this event occurred. Why? Let me ask you a series of questions. Okay, and you will see really that it is illogical that Amalek actually attacked the Jews. Let's think about this. One, was Amalek's problem? Did they really think the Jews were a threat? Were they reacting to a threat? And the answer is, of course not. <clears throat> it says that Amalek crossed five boundaries in order to attack the Jews. Well, five boundaries means like five countries. So therefore, the Jews obviously were not a threat militarily. You know, if you're five boundaries away, you're obviously not a threat, right? So why would they attack the Jews? The Jews are not a military threat to Amalek, you see? So that's the first question. Well, if, there's not, if they're not a military threat, then what are you attacking them for? You see. 
Second question. Well, maybe Amalek didn't believe in God, but that's also not true. There was no such thing as atheism in those days. You know, this was before Darwin and evolution. Everybody was religious, except the Waivad of Adizar. So what's the problem? Amalek believed in their gods, whoever that is, right? And the Jews believed in their god. So what's your problem? Why are you attacking the Jews? Since both of you believe in God, you see? So we're not talking about an atheistic nation against a believing nation at all. So then that doesn't make sense. So why are you attacking the Jews for? They have their religion. You have your religion. So what? Every nation had their religions. I mean, Egypt had their own religion and so on. So that's a question which is very difficult to understand. Why is Amalek attacking the Jews? Now, it's not only that, you know. Do you know how much money it cost to mount a war against, against another nation? The United States spent a billion dollars a day in the war with, uh, with Iraq. Imagine a billion dollars a day. Why? Because they had to move everybody over. That's a fortune in money. So if Amalek had to go through five different boundaries, that means they've got to move the entire army to attack the Jews. Yeah, but wait a minute. There's no food. Remember, it's a wilderness. So obviously, they have to bring all the necessary food and everything along with them. That cost them a fortune. So why are they doing this? Like I say, there's no religious threat. There's no military threat. So why would they do this? It doesn't make sense. We're looking for a motive here, yet we don't understand what the motive is. You see? Another question. Amalek saw what the Jews did in Egypt. The Jews destroyed Egypt. But wait a minute. Egypt was the greatest nation on earth. So if the Jews are able to destroy Egypt, in, in whatever way they did, right? So of course they can destroy Amalek, right? So Amalek is committing suicide. How do you fight against a nation that just destroyed uh, the greatest nation on earth? That's, that's pure suicide. You see? So that also doesn't make sense. You see? And another question why is it that the Rabbanu Shlodim says that Kiyod al Ko, their hand, the hand of Amalek, is against the throne of God? And Mochoy Timcha, you should blot out their memory, right, their name. Why does the Bosham hate them so much? You know, he doesn't say that about other, other nations, you see. So what is it that the Bosham knows that we have to utterly destroy Amalek, every last vestige of Amalek. That's a very important question. Clearly we see that the motive for Amalek warring with Judaism is a very significant factor. And the question is, what is that? 
What is it about Amalek that God hates and says we should destroy them? You see. Okay. That's a whole series of questions, you see. <coughs> that automatically means <coughs> that we don't really understand what is going on here. Because when you try to find out why would Amalek do this, spend all that money when there's no threats at all, you know, or go up, go up against the power that destroyed Egypt, doesn't make sense. So, if not for the fact that the Torah says that it happened, obviously, it would be very hard to believe why Amalek would do this. You see? And remember, there were millions of Jews that left Egypt. Even though 80% died, you still had 600,000 men from over the age of 20. Right? And then when you add their wives and their children, you had millions of people. Could you imagine the army that Amalek had to put together to fight the people, the Jewish people? You know, we're not talking about a, a ragtag nation. We're talking about an entire nation that left Egypt. So therefore... Imagine how many people Amalek had to have in their army. None of this really makes sense. What we have to do is understand what is going on here, you see. Now, when you look at the Megillah, now we know Homan, of course, is what? Homan is a descendant of Amalek, right? Hagogi, right? Hamdosa and so on. All of these people are descendants of Amalek. And when you think about the behavior of Haman, right, it also doesn't make any sense. For instance, Haman asks, after Mordechai refuses to bow to him in the beginning of the Megillah, so Haman says, he saw this, and he asks, who is this guy? So they told him he is a Yehudi, that Mordechai is Jewish. And then he decides, well, He's got, not only does he have to kill Mordechai, he wants to kill all the Jews. Why? You know, does this make any sense? We're not looking here at an idiot. Homan was the Grand Vizier. You don't become a Grand Vizier if you're an idiot, you know? Why would he do that? You see, why would he want to kill the Jewish people if he's angry at Mordechai? I mean, that, that means it's an extreme degree of rage and hatred to take it out on the whole nation? That's a good question. Because he didn't bow, you see. So that's a question. Another question in terms of Homan, you see, is that he goes and tells uh, he goes and tells Ahasuerus that the Jews are different. Right? They're different. They don't have the same religions and they have different belief systems. Right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Remember, Ahasuerus was an emperor over 127 different countries. Well, guess what? Each country had their own language, their own religion, and their own culture. So, of course, there are going to be differences in, among all the nations that he was over. You see? So, what is Haman's argument? What do you mean because, you know, they have different belief systems and so on? 
Well, I've got 127 different belief systems, you see. So that's the question then, you see. Why in the world would Bachashverosh give Haman the permission to do this? You see. So th- these are questions even from the Megillah. Also, why is it always that it says in the Megillah, right, that it's always mentioning his ichos. You know, Haman ben, uh, you know, Hamdoso, Hagogi. Why does it keep repeating the yichos, the genealogy, right, of, of, of Haman, you see? Why, is the, why are they always doing it? Therefore, these are questions. What is Haman going to get out of this, you see? In any case, we now have a series of questions which are very difficult to answer. So how do we begin to answer all this? Who is Homon? Who is Amalek that God says you must utterly destroy them? Okay. We therefore have to understand a very fundamental idea of the psychology of man. Uh, You should know one thing. Man has one of three beliefs or three delusions of false belief. Either he thinks he's God or he thinks he can become God or he wants to overthrow God. Man is obsessed in many ways with God and how to deal with God as an authority figure, you see. And we see that. All the Mauritians wanted to become God because the Sultan with the mouthpiece of the Nochos said to him, right, that uh, and you could become like God. Well, clearly that was the temptation, right? So that's Adam's problem, you see. Now, man wants to overthrow God, and that was the Migdal Bovel, the Tower of Babel, you see? So imagine building a whole tower, organizing a whole social movement to war with God. There you are. And then there are people that think they are God, the Paroi. Paroi imagined himself to be a god, you see. What's with this business? And the answer is a very important concept about man's psychology, Uh, you know. Look, mankind is born as an infant. As such, he realizes, you see, that he is not god, that he needs other people, you see, to supply his needs. And as a result of that, he develops what's called a certain inferiority complex. You see? People, in many ways, they don't feel secure about themselves. Their self-worth is always in question. They're insecure. They're always trying to what's called reassure themselves. That what? That they are somebody. That's the universal problem of man. Believe it or not, I'm not going to dwell on that because it's a whole different Shia. A fundamental belief of man, you see, is that he is nobody, you see. And he spends his whole life doing so many different things in order to reaffirm, to reassure, or to assert that he is a somebody, that he has some type of self-worth. 
Therefore, that leads to something else. What does it lead to? Therefore, everybody hates authority. Why? Uh, because if somebody's in charge, then what does that mean? It means that you are basically under somebody else's power or authority. Well, that reminds you of your inferiority. Everybody hates authority. Nobody wants a boss. We know that. Even though you've got to work, right, and you want to work in order to make money, but you hate the fact deep down that you've got to take orders from somebody else. Why? Because it not only limits your behavior, right, but it also reminds you, right, that you are not what you think you are. You are really inferior. Therefore, man has the inherent belief deep down that he is inferior, that he basically in many ways is nobody. That is why mankind spent its whole life trying to prove to himself that he is somebody. And that explains all kinds of actions that man takes. Everybody wants to be remembered, and they want to be the boss, they want to have an enormous amount of money, right? Because then they can do whatever they want. They're not dependent on anybody. And dependency reminds people that they are inferior. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but fundamentally, uh, the desire to feel like somebody is an unbelievable foundation for man's behavior. Now, there's something else that this leads to. That's a very important idea. People hate authority, even though they may have to listen to the authority. Nobody wants a boss. And that produces tremendous amount of problems, whether it be in employment, whether it be marriage, you know, where one spouse tries to control the other. This always creates tremendous amount of problems and so on. Uh, but you know where it really creates tremendous problems? With religion. Why? Because if somebody believes in God, then automatically they have to submit to his will, to God's will, to his authority. But nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to limit their behavior. Everybody wants to do what they want to do, their will. You know? The last thing, there's a tremendous resistance in many ways to submitting to the authority of God. Again, because... God as an authority, right, reminds a person that he is inferior. And therefore they don't want to do it. Uh, that becomes an ultimate struggle of man. Is it possible to believe in a God, right, who is all-controlling and all-powerful, right, and still not feel inferior? People have that. It's an eternal struggle. In one place, one uh, position to believe in God, and in the other position to believe in yourself by not submitting to God. So what does a person do? This is a tremendous problem for everybody. You see, either you submit to God or you rebel against God. You see, it's very hard to have an in-between. Ah, Therefore, what humanity has done is they have developed ten different logical ways 
how they can get around it. It's called having your cake and eat it too. How you can believe in God, uh, right, and submit to what He wants, and still do whatever you want. So you don't feel as bad, the fact that you have to submit to a divine authority. And I'm going to go through ten different steps. Each one is a belief system. Uh, each one is a foundational belief of a religion, believe it or not. And all of them provide man with what is called an exit, where he can believe in God and do what he wants. You see? So in a certain sense, he has solved the problem. Since he could do what he wants, he doesn't have that inferiority complex. I'm going to give you ten ideas. One, well, atheism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. You see? Well, so that guy has solved this problem. He doesn't believe in God at all. But the problem with atheism is that in many ways it's illogical. Now, without going into the proofs of God's existence, one simple idea is, is that the world is so unbelievably complex that it could not have come about through chance. Evolution is based on chance, you see. And the complexity of the world defies the fact that chance did it. So it's very hard to be an atheist. You know, it really is. You know, it's funny, I reminded, there was a guy, I forgot his name, he was a tremendous skeptic and he was a professor in Oxford, okay? And he once said, when he was 83 years old, mm -hmm. let me call his name, but finally, you know, he was in the hospital and he said, you know, I now believe in God. So his students were shocked. You believe in God? What do you mean? You're the model for atheism. She says, that was, but now I'm not. Why? Because I've realized and I've studied that the world is much too complex for it to have come about through pure chance. It cannot be. So this person now believes in God. You see? Uh, so atheism is really a very difficult belief to entertain. So what does a person do? Okay, so I don't believe that there is no God. I'm uncertain. It's called an agnostic. I don't know if there's a God. You see? So I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying there isn't. Until somebody proves it to me, I don't know if there is, and I'll do whatever I want. So agnosticism is another remedy, you see, that provides an exit. Oh, you see. So people who are agnostics, basically, you see, okay, that's a second way. A third way, where a person can believe in God, but he doesn't believe that God involves himself at all in the affairs of man. <clears throat> Aristotle held that. He said, of course God exists, and the universe is a result of God. But what does God have to do with us? Nothing. You see? Not interested. He doesn't lower himself to be involved in the affairs of man. And therefore, you could do whatever you want. That was Aristotle. So, it's another very interesting way of providing yourself with a remedy, not being bothered with a conflict or a struggle of God's supremacy. <clears throat> then there's another idea, number four. Well, maybe God is not omnipotent. 
He doesn't. He's not all powerful. You see, and he's not all knowing. Who held that? Well, Bilam. Do you remember when God said to Bilam, "You know, who are these men with you?" When he's coming to curse, going to uh, you know uh, a Pollock to curse the Jews from Midian, right? So God encountered him, right? And he said, who are these people with you? So Bilaam said to himself, that's very interesting. I thought God is omniscient. He's not. Omniscient needs to be all-knowing. So obviously, God doesn't know everything. So therefore, Bilaam believed that God is incredibly powerful, but he's limited. And obviously, if God doesn't know everything, guess what? Right? I could do whatever I want. Because he doesn't necessarily know what I'm doing. See? So that's another belief system that allows man an exit. Uh, Then another form is called two gods, where you believe in two gods. And that's really what Zoroastrianism is, the religion of Persia. They believe in two gods. One is a god of good, and the other is a god of evil. You see? And they fight with one another. So therefore... Since you've got a God who's evil, guess what? You could do whatever you want, right? You worship the God of evil, and then you're protected because you've got a God on your side, you see? So that's another incredible strategy, right? To avoid believing in God. Two gods. Uh, then there is what's called polytheism, where you believe in many gods. Uh, in Greece, they had over 50 different gods, all kinds of deities. You see? It's called polytheism, the belief in many gods. You see? Now, how is that going to help you? Because when you have many gods, right, each one is powerful, and each one has his own system that he wants people to observe. So guess what? In the 50 gods, you can find the ability to navigate between them. In other words, you'll take the ideas of one God that allow you to do what you want in this area, and you'll combine it with the area of another God that he allows you, you see? So among 50 gods, guess what? You can do whatever you want. You see, that is the beauty of polytheism. That's why many people believed in many gods, because then they can do whatever they want. They can pick and choose who they want to believe in, or rather, who they want to worship. You see, so that's number six. Then number seven is another brilliant strategy where they have the God that they believed in, that he himself was immoral. That's why Greece had a God that they believed in, a deity, right? His name was Jupiter or Zeus, whatever. And he used to go around raping women. You see, now, if God rapes women, well, why can't I do that? If gods are immoral, which they are in Greece, then anybody could do what gods do. You see? On the contrary, it provides an incredible moral basis, or rather immoral basis, for man to do whatever he wants. You see? And, and as a result of that, uh, that's what they gain by having God himself as being immoral. You see? And in many ways, they, what they do is they give God the characteristic that they themselves would like. Now, if you take one of the religions, for instance, Islam, 
Islam believes that God, it's okay to murder Jews. God commanded, what's his name, Muhammad, uh, you know, that the Jews are terrible. So, therefore, God himself, right, is unjust and unethical in that sense. And therefore, they, therefore, can kill Jews, right, as a religious ritual. It's incredible. You see, so that's what that gains you. Now, another strategy, number eight, right, is that God is not immoral, but the worship of God contains immorality, robbery, murder, and vices. And you have religions like that, you see, where the worship itself is immorality. That's why you have a lot of the religions of Idezorus that have a tremendous amount of zimo, you see, sexual practices as part of it, you see. What they did is they covered up their immoral desires and actually made it a worship or that which God wants. The classic one is Baal And the worship of that is where you would uh, relieve yourself, and I mean literally relieve yourself, to, uh, you know, to defecate in front of God. And that was the Abadizah. Would you believe this? You know? So therefore, that's another strategy where the worship of God himself is immoral. You see? Or it has vices. You see? And then there were, there were uh, I think, Hindu gods where it was a mitzvah to kill, to murder. I think Kali is one of them. It's one of the tri, uh, the uh, triple, uh, the trinity of, of uh, Indian uh, religion. Where on the contrary, it was a mitzvah to murder. You see. Okay. Number nine. Okay. Another way of doing that is by limiting worship. That's Christianity. So what Christianity believes is to get away from all the mitzvahs. And all you have to believe is that he died for our sins on the cross because of grace. So what grace does is it actually absolves anybody from observing any of the commandments, any of the mitzvahs. That's what he did. He said, I come not to abrogate the law of Moses. Meanwhile, abrogate means to remove, cancel. Meanwhile, that's exactly what he did. So the incredible strategy of Christianity is basically it's incredibly limited in worship where he removed most of the commandments. So therefore you could do whatever you want. You see, you solve the problem of submitting to God. You see? Then we finally have a tenth strategy where there's a religion, and that is Christianity, where if you want to atone for a sin, guess what? You don't have to beg God for, for, for forgiveness. Man can atone for man's sins. The priest. You see? You can go to confession, right? And as a result of that, he, he himself can forgive you. Forget about God. Okay, he may lay, lay down a certain conditions, right? That you have to pay donations, which is what they did. In fact, in the Middle Ages, this used to be called indulgences, where a guy would go, sin, and then he would pay. And sometimes it was even retroactive. You'd pay first and sin later. You see? And this was absurd. In fact, the one who got angry at this was a priest called uh, Luther, and he therefore broke away 
from from uh, uh, Catholicism. That's how it all started. That's one of the things of what's called indulgences, where they had the priest forgive, and of course, you paid the guy, and he would forgive you. That's another brilliant strategy, because if a man can forgive the sins of another man, guess what? He can be bribed, right? Because everybody needs money. Everybody has an interest in some sort. So all you do is supply the interest, you see? And that guy will forgive you. What an incredible strategy, you see? I've just given you 10 different strategies, what's, what's called provides an exit, where you can believe in God and do what you want. Why? Why do people need these strategies? And the answer is because they don't want to be told what to do. Because that is the ultimate drive of man. The greatest psychological drive of man is to believe he is a somebody. And to be subject to somebody's authority is a direct, puts you in direct conflict, right, with the, the belief that you're somebody. Because why are you uh, under the authority? Uh, therefore, man has come up with tremendous strategies. Now we come to the 11th, and that is Judaism. What is the belief of Judaism? A, there is only one God. Not only that, but he imposes and demands morality, virtue, righteousness, and justice. You see, that's the first thing. The second thing, by the way, he's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And he's omnipresent. He's all over, you see. And there is no other religion. <clears throat> That's Judaism. But wait a minute. That doesn't provide anybody with an exit, does it? No. Because there's only one God. There's not many, right? And he actually has demands. Like I said, morality and virtue and righteousness and justice, right? These are the contrary to man, you see? So then, how do we exit? How do we get away from doing what God wants so we can feel good about ourselves? And the answer is, you can't. You have to submit to all these mitzvahs, you see? That is why, by the way, why did Nimrod hate Avram Avino? Why? Because what Avram Avino did was completely contrary to the belief of man Nimrod. What was that? Because everybody was saying there are many gods. And Avram Avinu said, nope, there's only one god. You see, everybody was saying, well, basically, there's an exit to do whatever you want. And Avram Avinu said, no, that the god, god is a god of tremendous righteousness, like I said, and uh, justice and morality. Therefore, Nimrod hated Avram Avinu. Because what Avram Avinu preached was a religion or a belief system that there was no exit, you see. There was no way to get around it and compromise the religion. And I'll tell you something important. That is really the origin of anti-Semitism. Uh, the Gemara says, why was how Sinai called Sinai? So the Gemara says it was called the mountain of Sinai because the word Sinai comes from Sinar, 
hatred. In other words, the origin of the hatred of Jews came from Sinai. Yes, that's where anti-Semitism comes from. Why? <clears throat> because from how Sinai, Mount Sinai, comes the Torah. And the Torah is a belief of Avraham Avinu, that there is only one God who demands morality and virtue, justice and righteousness, and there's no exit. So mankind hates the Jews. Why? Because mankind, it's not that mankind hates the Jews, really. They hate the Jews because they hate God, because God is in direct conflict to what they want, even though they won't admit that. You see, because they're afraid. But really, they hate the Jews because the Jews are the ambassadors of God. They represent the teaching of Harsinai, the very, very important concept why people are anti-Semites. Because in the end, everybody knows that the Torah is from the Jews. You see? And they hate the Jews deep down because the Jews have made everybody slaves. You see, in that sense, they have taken away the exit from mankind. You see, in other words, the Jews serve God and they follow his dictates. But everybody else wants God to serve man and that God should follow man's desire. You see, we now understand from all of this what an Amoleki really is. Amalek realized the Jews are, you see? Why did they attack them? Because the Jews were the most dangerous people in the world, you see. <clears throat> of course, Amalek believed in a god. He wasn't an atheist. But their god, they were able to provide themselves with an exit. You see? They could do whatever they want, whatever their religion was. Along comes the Jews, right, and says, no way. You see? Can't do that. So Amalek hated the Jew, you see, the religion of Sinai. But the interesting thing about Amalek is not just Amalek hated them, right? They were more nefesh. They didn't care, even if they would die, like I said. So even though the Jews were not a military threat, and not a religious threat per se, but they were a religious threat. Because the religion that the Jews were promoting was contrary to what Amalek believed in, that there was no exit. So Amalek said, even though we will die by fighting the Jews, because they destroyed Egypt, we don't care. They were moist and nefesh. They self-sacrificed themselves to destroy the Jews. And that's why God hates them. You know, it's one thing if a guy's an atheist. So God knows itself, in many ways, is untenable, you see. So eventually the guy is going to come back. But what God realizes, and that's why he hates them, is that if you believe in God and you still try to compromise with God, then you make a joke out of the whole religion. And that is the worst. Because you believe in God, yet you have incredibly compromised and weakened God. You see? <clears throat> and for that, there's no remedy. That is why God would rather toler tolerate an atheist than an Amoleki. Because an Amolek believes that you must compromise God. You see? And if you compromise God, then he has made a mockery 
of Judaism. And we actually see that in the Pesach, because it says, because God says, why do I hate him? Because Yod, because the hand of God, you see, or rather the hand of Amalek, is against the throne of God. It doesn't say that Amalek is against God. He is against Kisei, the throne of God. You see, that means he's against the sovereignty of God. He can believe in God, but he's against his authority. That's what sovereignty is. His ability to command you, you see. And therefore, that's what God directly says. That the hand of Amalek is against the Kisei, the throne, the sovereignty of God. And that's God's authority of a man. See? It actually says that in the Posse. And God says, that is the worst of all. You see? Because he'll make a mockery of the whole concept of religion. And worse than that, that Amalek so hated the fact that God was an authority without, and they had no exit, is that they were willing to die, commit suicide, to destroy the Jewish people, to make sure that the Jewish type of religion, that there is no exit, that God is completely moral, righteous, and just, right? That this God must be destroyed, this religion must be destroyed. And therefore, they were willing to sacrifice themselves. You see, now, that is a very, very important idea. Because the problem is that the Jews provide no exit. Also, what is interesting, you see, is that the word Amalek, Ayin Mem Lamed Kuf, is the same as the Rosh Tevis of the word Oil Malchus, the kingdom of heaven, Loikiblu, they could not, they did not receive. It doesn't say that God they didn't receive. It says Oil Malchus, the yoke of heaven, they would not receive. So they admit there's a God, but they denied right his authority. The actual word Amalek indicates who they are. You see? Uh, not only that, we now understand Haman. Why? Because think about that. Haman saw Mordechai. He doesn't bow to him. So he realized, why isn't this guy bowing to him? It would be to his benefit if he bowed to me, because then I would do him favors. So Haman realized, you see, that this guy must believe in a God, right? That you cannot violate God's dictates. But God is an authority. You can't bend God. There's no exit. So he asked his guys, who is this guy? So they told him he's Jewish. So that's when he decided, wait a minute. I am a descendant of Amalek. And they hold, their whole mission was to destroy God, the Judaism, the belief of Judaism. Why? Because they don't provide us with an exit. And that's why this guy, Mordechai, didn't bow before me. Because you cannot compromise with God at all. But that's exactly what my ancestors wanted to destroy. Because it leaves a man, right, without exit. So he was following the tradition. You see, that's why it's always saying who the Yichus of Amalek is. You know, Ben Hamdoso, Agogi, and so on. Because basically... Not only he hated the Jews because Mordechai didn't bow, but the key concept is he was following 
right, the tradition of his ancestors, the Amole, the Amolekis, you see? And therefore, it, when it refers to Haman, it refers to his hijos, you see? Uh, not only that, but if you think about it, what, when he comes over to Ahasuerus, he tries to convince them to kill them, right? So what's the argument? Well, they have their own belief system, which is different. They don't believe in our system and so on. Well, I pointed out the question doesn't make any sense. In 127 provinces, countries, none of them follow your religion. So what, what Haman said to Ahasuerus, it's a very important concept. He said, listen, there are many religions in your kingdom, of course. But all of them, in some way, have provided themselves with an exit. Some type of strategy, you see, to compromise God. The Jews have no strategy to compromise God. They believe in one God, right? And God is absolute. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. So there's no compromise here. That's the most dangerous religion of all, you see. That was his argument, you see, that Judaism is very different than all religions of the earth. Like I said, that is why Nimrod hated Avram Avino, you see. And now we understand something in the 20th century. Let's take a look at Germany. Hitler, Yavach Jemai, right? He wrote a book in 1923 called, right, called Mein Kampf, which is my struggle, right? And in that book, he says what he's going to do to the Jews. He warned the world. Why? Why did Hitler hate the Jews? Because Hitler was a German, and the Germans believe in what? You know, Deutschland über alles. That's their uh, song, Germany over all. It's a concept of the Aryan race, the supreme race, Nietzsche, the Superman, you see, the Ibram, the Obermensch, uh, or Ibermensch, whatever, you see. So they believe that they were superior. The last thing that they want, right, is to submit to God. You see, they held themselves to be Superman, to be the, the, the paragon of a man, of mankind, you see. And Hitler writes in Mein Kampf, right, that he must destroy the Jews. Why? Because he says that the Jews have made us, mankind, into wimps, weaklings, you see? Uh, Because they have introduced morality and ethics. That's a classic statement of Amalek. And the problem with the Jews is that there's no exit. So therefore, what did Hitler do? Hitler said, we must destroy that type of religion. We must destroy the Jews, all of them. Because they promote this terrible belief that we must submit to God, that we have no exit, none of them. Uh, you see, in fact, what's fascinating, like I said, is that Amalek believed they didn't care if they commit suicide. So it says in the book called The Third Reich, you know, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, whatever. <clears throat> that says the following, that at the end of the war, Hitler approached, or the generals of the army, what they were losing. And they approached Hitler and they said, you know, we're losing the war. So Hitler said, okay, what's the problem? 
So they said, we need the cars, the railroad cars, to bring the troops to the front so they can fight. So Hitler said to them, what's the problem? So they said, because what you're doing is you're diverting all the railroad cars to bring the Jews to the concentration camps. You're more interested in killing Jews than in winning winning the war, right? And you're the one who said the Third Reich will be for a thousand years. What's going on here? So Hitler told him to get lost. He didn't care. It's amazing. Even though he knew they were losing the war, right, the, the death or the slaughter of the Jews was more important to him. Why? Because that's Amalek. But what do you mean? You're going to lose the war. That's suicide, right? But that's what Amalek is. Amalek is on a suicide trip because they must destroy a religion like Judaism. Because there must be a way that a guy can do whatever he wants and still believe in God. You see? So Hitler was the classic Amaleki. And the truth is, that's who he was. Hitler is a Gilgal of Amalek. And his ten ministers are a Gilgal of the ten sons of Haman. There's a whole concept here. And so on. I don't want to get to the whole thing. But this is really what we're looking at that all of them were resurrected to finish the job, you see, to destroy the Jews and their religion. Because that's what Amalek can't stand. Uh, and now you understand something very important. Why does the Torah say, always say, Moshe, and Moshe did the way God commanded Moshe. It says that so many different times whenever the Rebbe commanded Moshe Abeno, you see, to do a mitzvah, or to teach the Jews the mitzvah. It always says, Hashem is Moshe, the way God commanded Moshe. And that tells you. Because Moshe said, listen, I can't, there's no exit here. I can't compromise a mitzvah and teach the Jews a different mitzvah or some type of loophole in the mitzvah. No. So the greatness of Moshe is that Moshe did exactly, precisely, what God commanded. See, there is no exit strategy. You can't compromise God. So the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu is because he did exactly as God commanded. There was nothing that he added in terms of himself. You see, and that's really what Judaism is. It is a religion where we believe the Bershom is one. There are no multiple gods. That devotion is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, you see. And that there's accountability. And what devotion wants is righteousness and justice, you see, and morality and ethics and virtue, you see. And there is no compromise. And on the contrary, the more you worship God, the more you are obedient to God, right, that exactly is the greatest way to feel like somebody. It's a paradox, you see. By exhibiting tremendous humility and submitting to God, that's exactly how you will become somebody because you will then become attached to God and in that way you will have true being, see, which is a complete paradox. We now understand what Amalek is. Amalek is not merely an atheist. 
That is a mistake. Because all religion, all nations were religious thousands of years ago. The problem is that mankind is always fiddling around, you see, with that belief system. Where everybody's always trying to compromise, look for loopholes, you see, how to in certain ways, uh, you know, diminish that which God says. Why? Because ultimately, mankind does not want to serve anybody. He doesn't even want to have a boss, right? And go to work where you have a boss. Everybody wants to do what they want to do, their will, because they have to believe they are somebody. And that, by the way, is the ultimate struggle of mankind. This was the struggle of Odomarishim, wasn't it? He knew there was a God. He spoke to the Bernishlam, right? So what's his problem? Because he didn't really want to do that, you know, but then how is he going to get around it? Oh, so here comes the Nachosh, the snake, and tells him, by the way, I got an exit strategy for you. What's that? You could become God. And if that's the case, guess what? You don't have to observe anything. You don't have to listen to the Bereshlam, you see? So the Satan was providing man or Odomarishan with an exit strategy, you see, that you can actually become God. This is a very important idea. This is the ultimate struggle of all mankind. You believe in God, you must submit totally and be obedient to the Bereshlam. And in that way, you will gain the greatest sense of self, you see. And since Odomarishan, that has become the most, the, the, the real struggle, you see. And that was his struggle, and that, therefore, has become the universal struggle of all mankind. And Amalek is the nation that not only does not want this, but they are willing to kill themselves, submit, suicide to destroy this religion. And that's what Rashi means. It was like a hot bath. You know, everybody was afraid of the Jews. Everybody, when they left Egypt, you see. And along came Amalek, right, and tempered with the strength of the Jews. And therefore, everybody now could make war. They showed you could make war with the Jews and kill them, you see. And that's what Amalek did, like Rashi says. It's like you go, like there's a hot bath, Right? And everybody's afraid to go into their hot baths because they'll burn themselves. And along comes a guy and he goes in and the heat affects him. But meanwhile, he cooled it off for everybody else. Even though he got burnt. He got scalded. You see? That's Amalek. Even though he died, committed suicide in that sense, right? And therefore, he made it possible for everybody to think that the Jews are vulnerable, and that you can kill them and war with God. So, this is a very, very important idea. What Amalek is, what it is still today. Because like I said, we see even now, Germany is Amalek. That's exactly why they hated the Jews. That's why Hitler hated the Jews. And he committed suicide. In the end, he committed suicide, right, in his bunker. And he was willing to sacrifice Germany. At least the Jews should die. It's amazing that really Hitler is the greatest traitor of German. Why? Because he put the welfare 
of the, the, the destruction of the Jews over the victory of Germany over the world. It's astounding when you think about that, what he really did for Germany. It was an incredible traitor. But the concept of Hitler is a concept of all mankind, and it goes on today. People think that they fool around with the Jews. They can mess around with the Jews and do whatever they want. And they don't realize the day will come when the Bershom is saying, enough is enough, and I will destroy you. As it says many times, you know, where the Bershom says, especially the Haftarah of Nitzavim, which, by the way, was the Haftarah of 9-11, that God was coming. Yeshayo saw in a vision that the Bershom was riding, was coming, right? And his clothing was filled with blood. So Yeshayo got very nervous. He said, maybe, then that means that God is now going to exact dinam, justice. So he thought maybe he's going to do that to the Jews. So God said, no, I, my clothing are stained red with blood. Why? Because I have just stepped on Edom. I have crushed them. How? Like a winemaker, right? Who steps on the grapes, right? To give out their wine. I have just crushed Edom. You see? because of what they've done to the Jews. This is what's going to happen in the end. They have no idea that when finally the retribution comes, these people who have killed Jews, destroyed them, shamed them, or treated them as less than human, all the nations of the world for thousands of years, they have no idea what's going to happen. Like it says in Aftarah, Okay, that what? But God says, I will utterly crush the Goyim. But the Jews, I will bring suffering, but I will not destroy them. This is what's going to happen to the nations, and we are all hopefully going to see the ultimate destruction of all the incredible enemies of the Jewish people. So, we now understand what Amalek is. We understand many ways what Purim is all about. And Adar is the magic month where hopefully we will see the destruction of the enemies of the Jewish people, you see? And hopefully the beginning of the true rehabilitation of the Jewish people. Any questions? So, Rabbi, that's why it says that uh, Hashem Please speak louder. Please speak louder. You're saying what? So she's saying, is that why it says that the Kiseh HaKavod of Hashem is not um, fully complete because Amalek is still um, on, on earth? Exactly, and I will explain that exactly. Because it doesn't say that the Kiseh of God is missing. You see? It says, right, because the throne of God is incomplete. What does that mean? Like I said, because Amalek defies the sovereignty. In other words, they allow the throne. They don't overthrow God because they believe in God, you see? But what they've done is compromised his authority. So that's like cutting the throne in half. That's why it says, right, that my throne is not complete. 
See, it's a beautiful remez, allusion to everything that I am saying. You see what I'm saying? So it will be complete when Amalek is fully destroyed? Correct. Because that concept or that desire of man, right, to, to weaken God, you know, will be destroyed. And then everybody will realize that God is absolute. You see? You have to observe what he said. You see? And that, that will be at the end of time. Rabbi, when will we know when we're in the rehabilitation stage? When will we know, or when will you know, or when will I know? All of the above. All of the above, huh? Um, well, well, what has to happen, like I say, and the truth is, it, it, it won't be known really until it really progresses. The Jews must be redeemed they must be rehabilitated. The Jews, 11 million Jews are gone. And God is not going to begin, bring a Mashiach, right, to Jews that are gone. I mean, it's terrible what's out there. Therefore, I believe in some miraculous way, God is going to elevate the Jews spiritually. And I told you the Pesach, because it says, <clears throat> even if you're outcast, and believe me, they're all outcasts. It's gullus, right? Even if they are in the ends of heaven, now that's pretty far away, right? Imagine what that is, the ends of heaven. From there, misham akabetzcha, right? From there, at the ends of heaven, because that's what from there means, I will, right, I will gather you. That means, and then from there, he says, misham, right? And from there, he will take you. Uh, that's two concepts. God has to enter the klipa from the klipa itself, which is a very important Kabbalistic concept, that the Shechina is in the klipa. The Shechina is in the Golis also, you see. And what happens is the Shechina will then assert itself again from within. That's why the Shechina can save the Jews God doesn't have to enter the Golas. He doesn't have to enter the domain of the Sultan. He's been there for 1,000, 2,000 years. Because that's where he went after the Beis Amigdash was destroyed. He has allowed the Sultan to be yonek, to nourish from the Divine Presence. You see? So therefore, from there itself, where God is now in, he will then take, uh, uh, bring a remedy he will rehabilitate the Jews from within. That's why he can do it from within. Because that's where he is. That is a rehabilitation. Something has to happen, a, some type of a spiritual movement that has to bring the Jews back sufficiently where God will then take them, right, from the Klippa, from the Golas, and he will bring them to Eretz Israel. That's the kibbutz, you see. And believe me, the Jews are not going to come back with God unless he rehabilitates them. Because rehabilitation is where God informs them spiritually of what is going on. That is the greatest simon that the redemption has begun. 
Will you see that? Eventually, you will. Because all of us will be rehabilitated during that time. You see, you know? That's, that's, that's what has to be. Yeah. going to be that tool that brings Albanesel back to spirituality? The answer is yes. I believe that Mashiach Ben Yosef has to be the one who's going to rehabilitate the Jews. You see? Because that's the main figure. The Mashiach Ben Yosef will bring the divine knowledge, the, what's called the Messianic light, the All Mashiach. That is the rehabilitation, you see? And in order to do that, that is the Mashiach ben Yosef, not the Mashiach ben David. Mashiach ben David is going to come after the Beis HaMikdash is built. But before that, you need to have what I call the rehabilitation. You need to have the descent of the Old Mashiach. You need to have the Jews coming out of Golis. You need to have the Beis HaMikdash. All of this is Mashiach ben Yosef. You see? Okay. So, uh, then the beginning, the beginning of rehabilitation, it would be Mashiach Ben Yosef appearing. Would Correct. That be the of it? Yes, he will. Be, yes, he will appear. Because yes. I, I would appear, I would assume most people would turn to spirituality if he was a figure that they could turn to. Exactly. Yes. That's okay, why whoever yeah. it is will grow. And that protects the Jews from this individual, his greatness. They will grow simultaneous with him. And they will see him as a messianic figure. I would imagine he will have incredible Ruch HaKodesh, which the Jews have not seen in thousands of years. His level, his level of divine inspiration will be awesome to behold, you see. And we don't even know how He's going, to have a, he's going to be a person that will have many powers that clearly demonstrate that he's Mashiach. But that will begin slowly, you see. But ultimately, everybody's going to recognize he's the guy. Because he's the guy, in the beginning, it's going to be Apiteva. It's going to look natural. But as time goes on, he will change. He will be transformed into this unbelievable figure. It's going to happen within nine years. So, Rabbi, do you still What was that? Think what was that? Someone's asking, someone's asking, do you still think everything's going to happen within the nine years, that after the nine years are up, we are starting Tehiyat HaMetim? Yes, I believe so. I believe we are in a downward spiral, like I said, you know, because it's Kulum Chayobim, we're in a downward spiral, and uh, God is doing that to be able to shut the window or to bring it to its last gap so he can reverse everything. Because when you think about it, the Jews are disappearing. I don't believe that's what God wants. 11 million Jews are disappearing. And there's also many other things which are happening. Do you notice how many Gedolim are dying? Do you notice that there are so many tzaddikim, b'nei Torah, Rosh Hashivas, Gedolim, they're dying? Well, how could that be? You can't replace these people. It takes years to become somebody like this. You see? So then what's going to be? The Jews are being left without a leader. 
Well, what does that tell you? That means we are at the bottom. What God is doing is taking away, you know, these people who could be leaders. Because I believe that means God wants to change the type of leadership, you know. But more important, he's taking away all these people. I mean, it's incredible what he's doing in order to provide some type of kapora for the Jewish people. Because the Jews are, like I say, they are bringing the Mashiach through sin and not through merit. And therefore he has to, as I mentioned, he has to have tachas benoi, the akedah. He must bring the Jews up to speed, you see, to bring the Mashiach. And that is why you're seeing COVID is killing so many righteous, so many Torah leaders. I mean, look who died uh, two weeks ago. Tremendous Torah uh, leaders. You know, people who spread Torah. Whoever heard of something like this? Every time you pick up the newspaper, there's somebody else who died. You know what I'm saying? It just continues. You see? What does it tell you? People have to realize what's going on here. God has never done this. You know, the, only, the, the last time he did this, when he killed an enormous amount of these type of Torah leaders, is in the Holocaust. That's the last time he did that. So what he did is he changed the entire face of the Jewish people. You see? But now, right? But at least then, you had people that were able to, uh, what he called, to continue you know, the Torah and the traditions. You know, you had people like Rabban Kotlazetzal who went to America, you know, and you had other people who went to Eretz Yisrael and they opened big yeshivas and so on, you know. Today, right, he's killing people in America and in Eretz Yisrael. So what are they going to do? Who's opening up anything anymore? You see? And there's no G'daylam. There's hardly any G'daylam being produced today. There's nobody of the stature of people that just died within the last month. So what does all this mean? We are looking at a period of unbelievable darkness. So how could this not indicate that we are at the end? It's one of the greatest proofs that we are at the end. Because give it another 10 years and even the gedolim of today will be gone. You see? So then what's left? And God will not abandon the Jews completely. There's got to be somebody left. You see? So therefore, we're at the end. And I believe by 2030, we will have Tchias Mesim. Yes. And that is why things are going so rapidly. You see? What? What? I can't hear you. What'd you say? Do you think, uh, okay, so let's say, God willing, the rehabilitation starts. Okay, does the rehabilitation start when the picky dust starts? The answer is yes. In order to have the rehabilitation, you need to have the picky you see. Because the rehabilitation really is that there has to be a descent of tremendous awe, light, Torah, 
wisdom, spirituality, but of a different nature, you see. And that itself is the Orishan. Therefore, that can only start when there's the Pekida, you see. Because without the Pekida, there's no rehabilitation. Why? Because there's no awe, there's no that unique light of Torah that can come down. It needs the Echida, which, like I said, is part of the Neshama of Adam, to come to the Mashiach ben Yosef. Because that's the instrument that he can absorb what's called the Nun Shari Bina, the 50th gate of wisdom. That is the Messianic light. But that 50th gate of Bina, of understanding, is in the sphere, right, of Ima. Right? And, and the only way that's going to come down is through the Bekida, which is the Echida of Adam Rishon that descends on Adam Harish, on, excuse me, on the Mishikh and Yosef. There is no other way, you see. No, it's what's needed is the equivalent of the snare. That's what's needed. You see? So, because this month is the month of Yosef, that we are hoping that the Pekidah and the rehabilitation starts this month? It's very possible that it will start this month. It's a great time, right? It's the month of Yosef. It is the month of the destruction of Hamolek, right? So it's a great time to start, you see? And if it doesn't? Well, we just got to wait longer. But whatever it is, it has to start soon. I can't hear you. What? Someone's asking. Um, okay, so you know we say the Shekhinah is underground. It's in Galut. It yes. has, it's like in the Klippah. So Correct. the question is, is that a couple of questions. Hashem is, like when you explain Hashem, is, does that correlate to the Shekhinah? Are they one and the same? Well, they're not really one and the same, but as far as we're concerned, we talk about the Shekhinah, correct? That is our uh, representation of the Rabbani Shalom, is the Shekhinah, correct? So then, but when we pray, don't we envision our Tefillah going up to Shamaim? Yes, but we do. the Shekhinah is down below us... Yes, the Shekhinah is the aspect... Well, it's not God. I, I don't want to get into the whole thing because that's the Shia that I'm going to give when I get into the Shia of Derech Hashem. But the Shekhinah is the aspect of... of some aspect of the presence of God that He allows to be usurped by the Satan. You see... And then, so, Shekhinah, is there a Shekhinah up in heaven also? Because when we pray, we pray no. to the Shekhinah. No, we don't pray to the Shekhinah. We pray to HaKadosh Bochu. That is God. Okay, so then, what do we, what, how do we, like, okay, when Shabbat comes, we invite the Shekhinah into our homes, or we always say you, uh, you invite the Shekhinah to dwell within your marriage. Like, how do you explain yeah. that aspect of it? Well, like I say, you know what it's like? Um, what's a good, a good example is, you know, is that you can have somebody 
let's put it this way. Imagine you go into a room, into a throne room, right? And you see a king or somebody sitting on the throne. The problem is when you look at the throne, right, there's garments, but there's no face. You don't see a being, yet you see somebody's clothed, you see? So there is what's called some type of representation, but you cannot see the being being represented. The Shekhinah is the clothing of God, but it is not God, you see? So the way we can address God is through the Shekhinah. means that's who we face. But God is behind the Shekhinah, you see. So th- that's an example of what's, what, what, what the Shekhinah is in relationship to God. <clears throat> you so that's see. why when, when we pray, we say, imagine that the Shekhinah is in front of you, but it's God that's behind it? Exa- yes. So the Shekhinah is the clothing of God, so to speak. It's what we can connect to. But we do not connect to God himself. He is beyond connection. As I will explain at some future point. Okay, so, so, so when at Tefillah, when we want them to rise to heaven, we want those to go to Hashem, correct? Well, we, what we want is the Shekhinah. We want to at least be able to see the clothing, <clears throat> which means that in many ways, when you, let's like the king, when he stands up, right? But you don't see a face. You realize that it's covering something, but you don't see the individual in, in, that is being enclosed or, you know, clothed and so on, you know? So we want the Shekhinah to be present so we can experience God in terms of what he allows us to experience, you see? And that's what's in exile. That's why we do not feel the presence of God. That's the Shekhinah. So the closest way we can experience God is the Shekhinah. So that's what God allows us to experience. But you cannot experience what's called Atzmusoi, the essence of God. And I will explain that in a future time. So the reason why the Shekhinah is uh, on the bottom, is under, is because we're in Galut, so it's in Galut as well. So, but we yes, the Shekhinah is in Galut with us in order to allow us to survive. Okay, That's and then why. When, w- when we pray, it comes out from, uh, from below and comes in front of us? Well, what will happen is that the Shekhinah will go out of Golis, Right? And so will we. Everything will... I'm talking about now. Like when we pray now, we're supposed to pray as if the Shekhinah is in front of us. But if exactly, we, yeah. yeah. You, but when, if the when you, Shekhinah is below, how does it get released from the Klippah to come in front of us? Well, the Rabbani Shalom will release it. God will release the Shekhinah. You see? It's like God will... Re- it's like the Rabbanishim will allow himself to emerge from this people, so to speak. While we pray? Yes. Sure. Really? Yes. 
So, so we, we hopefully, and I believe definitely, we are at the point of rising because Israel is descending into darkness so rapidly that you can be certain that we are near the bottom. Like I say, one of the greatest proofs that we are right at the cusp of the Messianic era is the death of so many righteous people that Israel needs. We need these people, you see, because they represent the Torah, they represent tzitkus, righteousness. They represent spirituality. We need that. And the fact that they are disappearing and in many ways leaving us empty and orphans, you see, in such a great number. I mean, the amount of these people who have died since COVID has come in is just, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, just think about how many people who are Torah leaders are dead because of COVID. So therefore, that itself is one of the greatest uh, evidences of the, the, the uh, entrance of Mashiach ben Yosef. Uh, 